Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast, an independent Formula One podcast that aims to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute and a wide array of F1 subject matter experts that cover every aspect of F1 from racing to politics, technology, news and business. This show is safe for work. We're keeping it clean here so you can play this with kids in the background or at work. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready, and I'm joined by Matt Two Rumpets. How's it going there, Matt? Oh, it's going great. Thanks for asking. Uh, we've been doing a lot of video work lately, haven't we? Yeah, I know. Look at the new and improved live stream. Unfortunately, the people on live stream can now see me in clear HD. We've improved the lighting and everything. Yes, although whether or not that's an actual improvement, we'll have to leave to the chat room. I'm hoping it'll be better for my personal glory. But look, when we started doing this video live stream, it was just so that the panelists who weren't on that week could listen in, could watch us recording it, and then send us messages to tell us when we've got things wrong, which was a lot. So it was handy. And then because we had that facility open, we opened it up and people started coming in and they watched us recording and they understood that, you know, we'd have to stop and start and we'd mess up and Jeansy would drop a thing. Uh, but what I've started realizing is on the YouTube, people started complaining. People were saying, you know, they can see me directing and holding up little signs for you guys, uh, or they could see me just getting things wrong or my image looked terrible. Because they were tuning in expecting a, a show, a YouTube show. And it's fair enough, isn't it, Matt? Because we're on YouTube. But we'd always said, you're watching a recording. Yeah, well, and the thing is, I was always distracted just by the... Ch- I assumed that the, the whole video was just an excuse for the chat room to do their thing. Absolutely. And that, that the video didn't really matter to them at all. But it is starting to matter. So because we've got those complaints, it means that people are listening. So we've listened, we've taken those comments on board, and we tried to make it a show for video, which is a little daunting because podcasts are very, very forgiving. It is so easy to just hack out a mistake I make or something litigious. Video, not so much. So please do check out the channel, subscribe, and bear with me while I learn how to do the video 
uh, as well as being a podcast person. Good job, I'm gorgeous. But that's not why we're here today. We are here again to speak to ex-Lotus F1 boss Matthew Carter. How are you, Matthew? I'm very good. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. How's Canada? Cold. Snowing here for the first time this year, but yes, it's it's good. Most people emigrate out to somewhere warmer, but you've deliberately gone to somewhere where if you fall asleep outside, you would die. For probably six months of the year, yes. Yeah. Fair enough. So you're a full-time resident in Canada? Uh, yes, at the moment. So uh, we didn't really get into it before, but I've, I've recently had a baby six months ago. So uh, prior to that, I was kind of 50-50 between the UK and Canada. And now, certainly the last six months, I've been here. So. My condolences on having a six-month-old baby. I hope you survive that all right. But um, this podcast probably exists because none of us have people in real life to talk to about F1. Is it is it worse in Canada? Are there less F1 fans to casually talk about it with? Uh, no, I don't think so, actually. I think where, where I am, I'm in Montreal, which is obviously where the where the Grand Prix takes place in Canada. And there's there's a lot of F1 fans in Canada. Um, I said this before I moved here, to be fair, that uh, outside of Silverstone and probably Monza, Montreal has probably the most passionate and knowledgeable F1 fans. Um, there's a crazy, you see on the TV, there's a crazy number of people go to the race. Um, and they do, they've got a real passion. You know, they've got Villeneuve was from, both Villeneuve, Gilles and Jacques were both from Montreal. So, And now they've got um, Lance Stroll. Yes, they must be very proud. But if you're saying they're a knowledgeable bunch of F1 fans, that probably explains why we don't have that many Canadian listeners. But hi to the guys in, in Canada. Uh, obviously, you said you weren't, really an f1 fan before going to lotus like you weren't going to races probably weren't tuning into podcasts uh but since since then now has has it left a big impression on you do you make it to many gps apart from canada um no so i mean it's only really 18 months since i was out of it full time uh so for the first probably six months i tried to steer as far away from it as possible um aside from as we've talked about before some little some little dalliances with manor and uh and working a little bit with ron dennis uh but outside of that no when when uh, i was actually approached by bernie to to help uh him with the race here in canada um and since then i've obviously kept in touch with what's going on and and personally i do i listen to podcasts i i enjoy listening to podcasts on various different things and, and f1 is one of them and uh I think the reason I started listening to your podcast was through a tweet that I saw from Joe Saywood, I think, was how it started. It works, Joe. See, Joe, it works. See? Technology. (laughs) It absolutely works. We can't let you skip past saying you worked with Ron Dennis because he is such an enigmatic character. And we, again, like we were saying with Bernie, we only see this kind of storefront where he uses every possible word to describe even the smallest thing. Like, what's it like being with what is an F1 legend? Every possible word and quite a lot of them don't actually exist. They only exist in his brain. <laughs> they he's exist made now. Up, he's made up for the purpose of that conversation. Um, he's, he's, a, he's a very, very interesting guy. Like, I mean, most of the people that have been successful in Formula 1 obviously are. He's a very interesting guy. Um, he's... I can understand why people think he's difficult to work with. Personally, I think as long as you uh, are achieving for him and you're doing what he's expecting of you, then he's he's very good to work with. Um, I didn't work in F1 with him. He has a number of businesses outside of F1. Um, uh-huh. One of them is a is a technology uh, fund that he invests into technology, and I and I worked with him there for six months prior to coming to Canada. When we spoke to Mark Priestley here, obviously he was talking about Ron Dennis as being somebody who is a perfectionist, who is very much into the details. 100%. He is, that's him, that's him all over. 
He's, uh, I used to, I used to go to meet him at his house and every, everything is, is immaculate. It really is. It's, uh, and the, and the, uh, the, the factory, the, the technology center in, in Woking is the same thing. You go there and you'll sit, well, I mean, I'm not sure if it's changed now. I'm sure it hasn't. But at the time that he was there, it was, uh, they have an area called the Boulevard where they line up all the old Formula One cars from down the eras. And they're literally lined up to within a centimeter. So the front wings, if you lean, if you lean down and you look along the line, you can see that the they're all immaculately lined up. And that's just how he is through his whole life. Ah, so that's me never working for Ron Dennis. I just don't have that kind of attention to detail. Well, that was a, a quite a nice little diversion. But Matthew, thank you for coming back because we caused a little storm here in the shed. We, we were the talk of the F1 town for a, for a little while, even though not everyone sourced the story. Uh, yes. Yeah, with our with my uh, my little story about Roman and Spa, yes, which was an exclusive. No matter what David Croft says, I don't think they did cover it at the time. Uh, but I I didn't really see what he said because I I obviously I don't watch a UK feed for the Formula One. So what did he say? He said that he knew about that before. Oh, he was just trying to sort of dumb it down, saying it was non-news and saying we we kind of covered it at the time, which I don't think anyone covered that the specific details of that. They may have said various engine modes etc were used. But how exciting for us to be talked about um, on Sky TV. I'll give you most of the credit. We'll say 55-45, Matthew. How's that? Okay, that's good. So on the whole, the story was greeted with tons of excitement. If you looked on Reddit, it was top of Reddit R1. There was like 500 comments, 600 up likes, or however it works on on Reddit. But there was some scepticism about the story, which I was hoping you might be able to answer. Because the person who made that Reddit post made a bit of a mistake in saying it was delivered remotely so can we clarify that you know it wasn't that they were sat at brackley and then they pressed a button beep 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 bop and that suddenly made grosjean faster no not at all so um so i mean a few things on the whole story which i i didn't obviously realize was gonna was gonna be as much of a story first thing uh i wasn't aware that it was not particularly well known or, or or not known that that went on um, I tried to explain a little bit in the podcast and I can try and explain a little bit more now is that when you, when you buy a, um, an engine from a manufacturer, they supply the engine and they supply a number of technicians um, to oversee the facilitating of that engine being integrated into your chassis. So when we were Renault, we had maybe 10, 15 Renault uh, mechanics and engineers in the garage. Uh, half and half, half on each side of the garage, and they would sit at the back and they would monitor that engine during the race. Um, And certainly in this current iteration of hybrid engines, they would monitor what was going on and they would advise different modes, engine modes and settings. On the uh, Renault engine, there was a thing called SOC, which they referred to a lot, which was state of charge. And that was all to do with how the battery was recharging itself during the lap. So as I tried to explain a little bit, and again, I'm not as technically minded as as, as Matt or, or many, many other people. But you beat, you beat me, though. <laughs> what I was trying to explain at the time was that during any period of a race, you can want to either recharge, put more energy back into the battery or less energy in the battery. So if you're, example, if you're trying to catch the car in front, you can agree to use more of the battery's power per lap and therefore you're not recharging it fully. Or if you want to take a bit of a breather during the race, then you can then you can charge the battery more during the lap. So unlike what's being proposed for the new set of en- engine regulations where the driver will have access to all of this power, this is something that's decided in real time by people sat in front of a laptop, if I'm understanding it correctly. 
Yes. Yeah. So that, that's. I mean, that's not as thrilling, is it, as the driver having a basically a battery nitro button? Well, well, I mean, we we had okay. So the, there's different things. So with the Mercedes engine, for example, they had they still had an overtake button, um, which was very similar to the the the, the Kurs button that they had in the previous iteration of engines. So they would have the the, the driver has an ability to press that button. However. If the driver sitting from his seat doesn't have access to all the information that's coming back from the engine and he decides that he's going to go on full on attack mode, um, then he's going to end up running the battery down. If he runs the battery down to a certain level, then it's not going to recharge and he's going to end up damaging the engine. Everyone listening and, and you've seen the the, 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 the steering wheels, they're, they're an array of buttons and there are an array of different settings they can go into. And honestly, I don't think there's any way that any driver could possibly understand every single uh, dial that's on that on that steering wheel. There's yeah, there's lots of combinations. I just a quick question: when you're talking about the technicians and and the engine modes, is it something where they will suggest to you, oh, maybe you should have your? Do they monitor the track action and say, oh, well, maybe you should have your driver do this, or is it a kind of thing where your engineer or strategist is like, we could really use some extra push right now? Can we get it from the engine? combination so it's it's a real combination it's 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 a team thing so i mean you've seen the number of people that sit on that pit wall and sit back in the garage so there's a strategist there's a race engineer there's a senior race engineer there's a race director etc etc so it's kind of a combination and the bits that are the bits that are heard over the television are very much a a snapshot a a, a tiny minute part of, of all the conversations that are going on so there's repeated dialogue and there's the people from Mercedes at the time in, in Spa. The people from Mercedes are sitting at the back of the garage and they're advising and they're saying to us, you know, you should put him into this mode or, you know, Roman has to go into this mode or, or however it may come about. And it was during that race that they literally, the call from them came through to us and they said, um, if Roman feels he can attack, then he can go into whatever the mode was. I, I saw something where this, I think the, the, someone had listened back to the audio and they heard us telling him to go into Strat 7. Um, but it's a combination of dials. And it's something that is that is is put into the car and predetermined before the race starts. So there were, I, I don't think I suggested it was done remotely. If I did, it's, it was an error. I don't think I said that. No, because you didn't. It certainly isn't. It isn't done remotely at all. Um, so there's a predetermined set of engine modes that are in that car, but... Those engine modes are only available at certain times for, and again, to me, it seems obvious reasons that, you know, you don't want the driver deciding he wants to go all guns blazing, run the battery down and the car breaks down after 10 laps. So certainly with this iteration of hybrid engines, there needs to be dialogue between the garage and the the driver. That was brilliant because I was going to ask you specifically, was it something you asked for or something they suggested? Now... The other question I really had about this, thinking about it, was do you know, was it the Brackley people or the Bricksworth people that suggested he could do that? Okay, so so for people that don't know, so Brackley is where the, the Grand Prix team are based and Bricksworth is where the engines are made. Bricksworth is uh, HPP, high-performance, high uh, Mercedes high-performance. Um, so it's the people from the engine department that sit at the back of the garage. So if you try and think of them as two separate entities, which I know is really hard, they have a racing team, which is, which is, which is Brackley, and then you have the engine team, which is Bricksworth. And the, so we would never have someone from Mercedes Formula One racing team in our garage, but you would have someone from the engine department. Aha. Uh-huh. Right. 
that makes sense. So almost like a, a field engineer from the factory supporting their customer. Yeah, I guess that kind yeah. of that does make a little bit more sense. So I've almost finished um, basking in the glory of our of our scoop. Apart from Paul Dresta on the telly said, "No, this isn't right. This can't be right because Mercedes always give all their customers the same modes." that they have, they're very good about it. Now, bearing in mind that Paul DeResta is a, a DTM Mercedes driver, is, is there any way that we had misconstrued that? Because I certainly got the impression from you that Mercedes would have given themselves, say, upgraded modes a lot earlier, perhaps, and those modes, you know, won't necessarily always reach you. So I, th- I think we, we, we're possibly digressing into too much of the modes and the engines and different terminologies. But no, I think in terms of modes, I think we always the modes are always there. They're always there's only X number of settings that you can have on the steering wheel, and the driver can go into those settings. If he went into the setting, he can be no. If he went into the setting and Mercedes hadn't suggested that it was a good setting for us to go into, or he went into the wrong setting, he would be told repeatedly to come out of that setting. And obviously the relationship between an engine supplier and a team is very important. You know, we wouldn't want to, for the sake of getting an extra place in a race, we wouldn't want to upset Mercedes. So we wouldn't do that at all. Um, what I was talking about in terms of parity was engine upgrades or any upgrades that they may have in terms of fuel, in terms of components, in terms of whatever it may be that they upgrade. The upgrades, it says in the contract, would always go to Mercedes Silver Arrows first and then yeah. would filter down to the teams afterwards. And what I was trying to say last time was that although it says that, it doesn't say how quickly it's going to come through, which, again, I can understand from Mercedes' point of view because they're needing to prove out those those uh, advances or those upgrades or those components. So if they need to prove them out over the course of two or three races, it's going to filter into the teams afterwards. What you also have to remember in this current era is that there are only – I think this year it's four engines. My my final year it was five engines we were allowed to use. This year it's four engines. And then then you get into engine Ugh. penalties. Then it's going to be three next season. Now what? But what? The, also, the contract says that you pay X million dollars, X million euros, whatever the contract may be in, for X number of engines. And we were always told we had X number of race engines, and we personally, I think at the time we had one engine that we could use in practice. So you quite often have a practice engine that they swap out and they'll put the race engine in for qualifying. Whereas at Mercedes, they could have as many as they wanted. And I think at the time, no matter how big the contract was, that there was an extra charge. So every other, every extra engine you needed, you paid more money for. So we at Lotus couldn't afford that. So we would therefore, we wouldn't get the same, you know, you don't literally don't get the same number of components and engines and you have to look after them. There's a lot of, we never used to do as much running in practice, in testing, because we didn't want to put stress onto engines that we knew had to survive or had to last us for the whole season. So you have that as well. So there's parity in terms of what they give us, but there's not necessarily parity in terms of how many components you have. Um, the other thing I was trying to say is that in terms of engineers, Mercedes-Benz uh, high performance only have a certain number of engineers that they send to the track. Now, where they send those engineers is they're going to send their best engineers are going to go to Mercedes. Then the next best set of engineers, where are they going to go? They're certainly going to go to probably Williams or Force India because they've been with them from day one. So the quality of your engineers tends to... Uh, Again, I don't think this is anything out of the ordinary. And this no, is, no, if, not this is what I was trying to say about Renault and what I was trying to say about Ferrari as well. Renault probably more specifically than, than Mercedes. Because with Renault, you have to remember that Red Bull were effectively Renault's number one 
team for the whole of the previous engine era. So although Lotus had Renault engines, the best engineers, the best upgrades, everything was going to Red Bull because they were winning championships. They were their number one team. Well, now that Renault have come back into the sport, at the moment, I'm not sure how that dynamic works, whether or not the best engineers are working with the with Renault or whether the best engineers are working with Red Bull. You then throw McLaren into the mix. And if you throw McLaren into the mix and Renault start to get better, at some point, there's got to, something's got to give somewhere. There's only so many engineers. There's only so many new parts. There's only so many uh, upgrades of the fuel, for example, that Total will do that can only go through to certain teams at certain times. And it... This is where the pressure points, are, I think, are going are gonna to hit next year. Uh, interesting. While you're on that, I will briefly say that Sam Watley in the chat room has said, uh, I think this is in reference to you kind of having to trust the driver to select the right modes and listen to those radio messages. Uh, Sam Watley says, Lewis has fast mode, moody mode and hip hop mode. Merck have disabled the third one. Um, so I'm going to time out him for 30 seconds, hashtag 44. Uh, okay, so um, while you're speaking on that, we, we that, that brings us nicely onto how the current works teams treat their customers now i think with um, mercedes as a team set up they don't feel threatened by williams force india um at the moment ferrari go out of their way it almost seems to only supply teams further down the grid like toro rosso like sauber but we've got a situation here that you're alluding to now where renault could get outclassed by both their customer teams uh, both by red bull and McLaren. Surely it's not going to be as obvious as we're going to see a peak in performance and then we're going to suddenly hear a spate of staff movements and then suddenly it's all going to switch around. That that would be damaging to Renault as a brand if they were seen to go out of their way to kill the competition from their customer team, surely. Of course, you know, of course. Of course. I, I, and I don't think it will be obviously as, as, as dramatic as you suggest. Um, all I'm trying to say is that the I know I I still know a lot of people that are at Renault and, and at Ensto, um, and the, the amount of investment that they're putting into their F1 program. I mean, they've they've pulled out from FE to concentrate on Formula One. Um, the amount of money they're spending at the engine at the engine factory in Viry in France. Um, this is all designed to make them a front-running team. And my suggestion, or my point of view, very much my point of view is if they do get to a point when they're racing on the same piece of tarmac as a Red Bull and as a McLaren, at some point, you know, it, it only becomes obvious that at some point there's going to be some friction. Um, now, how they manage that friction is, is entirely up to them. I mean, you saw last weekend with Toro Rosso that maybe sometimes French people aren't necessarily the most diplomatic. Oh, I could never say such a thing, but um, I would be, speaking of French people, not at all surprised if they only got out of Formula E to avoid Sebastian Buemi, to be honest. Uh, but looking into you know more of the dynamics of, of how works teams and customer teams interact, because obviously that was um, something that was very consuming in your time in Formula One. But I think a question we get quite a lot here, which we just don't know the answer to, is what happens when an engine breaks? Because the Toro Rossos that have now kind of, you know, are losing their battle against the Renault Works team, surprisingly. Uh, um, When that engine keeps breaking, you know, is there a financial penalty? Is there an inquiry as to whose fault it is? Um, We saw Toro Rosso coming out with a very aggressive statement, like a surprisingly aggressive statement, um, 
defending themselves against Renault's claim that they were perhaps overrunning those engines. Do you have any insight into, you know, what was going on there and, and how does it normally work in, in the kind of court martial of engine failures? I mean, all I can do is I can, I can talk about the way that it worked when I was there. And, and as I've, I've already said on just now, that Renault will have their own engineers in the back of that garage advising Toro Rosso on what engine modes to go into, into how to run their engine and the best way to run their engine. I think it would be very, very hard for Toro Rosso to do anything that Renault don't know about to damage the engines. So although Toro Rosso came out with a fairly aggressive statement, I think Renault started the, the, the fight because they came out and said that Toro Rosso were doing something that was damaging the engines or it was, it was, no, uh, it was, a, it was a strange con- a circumstance that it was only happening to Toro Rosso and not to the other Renault engines. Um, so I think it was Renault that started the, the argument, if you like. Um, and I can't see that Toro Rosso would do anything. I don't think Renault would allow them to do anything that would, that would deliberately damage the engines. Um, but what we saw as a result of that, it clearly wasn't friendly. There wasn't, it wasn't like for show because we saw, you know, the Red Bull boss and the Renault boss face to face and it looked passionate and it was public. So, you know, clearly there was a genuine clash point there. Yeah, it's, I mean, tempers, tempers for, I mean, it, as I tried to explain, and, and I think this was explained as well a little bit by, uh, by France at, uh, at Toro Rosso, the difference between sixth and seventh or whatever they're fighting for, fifth and sixth, is, is somewhere in the region of about $10 million, um, somewhere in that sort of region. So it's, it's important. There's two races left. There's six points between them. Um, Renault very, very boldly said that they were going to come fifth in the constructors this year. Um, they are spending a hell of a lot of money. They've got some serious board members that they have to report back to. Um, the difference between seventh and sixth would be would be huge for them. Um, and there's six points between the two. So, and Toro Rosso, don't forget, are going to Honda next year. So, although their parent, if you like, down the down the pit lane at uh, at Red Bull, are, are looking to keep the relationship with Renault good, I don't think Toro Rosso have any inclination to be friendly with Renault for the let for they've got one race left so why why would they yeah exactly and I think the fact that there is only one race left that's where the suspicions arise uh did you have to deal with Cyril Abidabo at all uh during your takeover time did I pronounce that right I never get it right Abidabo <laughs> fabulous pronunciation fabulous Sweet. uh yes I did yeah Cyril was uh Cyril's had a fairly a fairly interesting career. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you remember he was the team principal back at Caterham. Um, so mm-hmm. my first year, 2014, he was the team principal at Caterham. Um, interestingly enough, as Caterham failed, uh, there was a there was a fairly lengthy discussion between the owners of Lotus and uh, Tony Fernandez at Caterham, and we were considering buying Caterham and running it as effectively like a B team for Lotus. Um, Ooh. So we did. We we had those discussions. Their factory's not a million miles away from Enstone. Um, there was a few. There was a few collaborations we could have done. We we looked at it. We we sort of weighed it up. We weighed up uh, the options of having different cars with different sponsors on them and how much revenue we could bring in. Um, so anyway, so I dealt with Cyril during that process. Uh, when Caterham when Caterham collapsed, he then went back to Renault. Um, and replaced a guy called Jean-Michel Jalanet, who was the guy that ran Renault engines when arrived in uh, at Lotus. And I, I think I've, I've touched on this before as well. It was kind of my initiation, along with the board, that we moved from Renault to Mercedes. Yes. 
So my second sort of uh, discussions with Cyril, should we say, were, the, were me telling him that we were going to leave Renault and we were going to go to Mercedes. Um, now, effectively, when I walked in the door as CEO at Lotus, we had a five-year engine contract with Renault. But my predecessor had failed to sign the long-form contract, and it was sitting on my desk for me to literally put my moniker on the bottom of it, and that was us off with Renault for five years. And I managed five to avoid years. doing it. It was a five-year contract, yeah. So I managed to avoid signing that contract for probably the first four or five months, and then we began to realize how terrible the engine was. I started discussions with Mercedes, um, so we effectively ran the whole of the 2014 season technically without a uh, an engine contract in place um so the board of lotus knew that the you know the the owners of lotus knew that and it was a it was a it was a risk strategy that we were right. going to move to mercedes so you weren't um, under pressure to be signing this renault contract from your own board they they were happy with where you if, were going if something had come wrong i am sure that it would have come <laughs> down on my you know, had no engine fairly Fairly heavily, yeah. So, but I do remember having a very, very similar conversation to the one that it appeared that France was having with Cyril in Singapore in 2014, in a hotel bar where he was uh, he was fairly punchy and pointy in my face. Wait a minute, what? In in a public hotel bar? That's where F1 business came to came to be discussed on that level. So, again, it's 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 an interesting story, but Singapore is a whole different level when it comes to the Grand Prix because we stick on European time, so. You have this very strange dynamic of people getting up at two o'clock in the afternoon. You have your lunch at 10.30 in the evening. You have your evening meal at 3 or 4 a.m. And then everyone sleeps through until lunchtime the next day. So the the hotel, lobby, uh, bar and sort of restaurant become just full of F1 personnel. Um, so it was in – it was – Sounds crazy. It was three or four a.m. in the morning, but it wasn't for us. It was kind of it was kind of early evening. But yeah, we were we were in the in the in the hotel bar, and there were a lot of F one people around. And uh, Cyril took exception to the fact that we were possibly going to be going to Mercedes, and decided to tell me all about it in front of everyone. And he does seem like quite a big, you know, quite aggressive guy. He's pretty forthright. You know how did how did you fare in that kind of Game of Thrones battle? He uh, he was pulled off actually by a few other people, but yeah, it was it was, it was oh. we were we, the conversation was uh, was 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 brought to a, a quick conclusion. <laughs> there was no there was no fisticuffs. It was just there was just a little bit of uh, shouting and pointing, and then uh, we went our separate ways. Oh, that would have been a better story though if if that had ended with so then I chinned him and that was me out of F one <laughs> done. Um, no, I mean it's fascinating to get an inside glimpse and to think that the passions of those kind of contract talks spill over into what is effectively kind of the social hours although i suppose when you're a ceo you probably don't ever clock off um but yeah still very fascinating for the people you know who must have been walking through and gone wait that's the lotus boss and the renault boss jabbing at each other um probably still in probably still in team kit as well we probably still would have <laughs> because we'd have come back from the circuit so we'd probably still been in team kit so um but it just it was very reminiscent of those pictures of, of civil and france tost and uh you know, as I jokingly said before, the French do get very passionate about things. Um, I was fairly passionate because uh, it was it was a it was a difficult situation. It was, um, and the people from Mercedes were in the same bar as well. So um, I remember the lawyer from Mercedes um, who used to work for. She's been there for a long time, so she worked for Ross Braun when he was there. So she was at the other side of the of the hotel bar as well, and she had our um, contract 
with her for the Mercedes engine, and Cyril knew this, so it was all it was all very fractious. I tell you what, though, as fascinating as that is, the chat room has exploded over the news that you guys were looking to take over Caterham. I mean, you've just glossed past that, but I mean, we we loved Caterham, and we were very disappointed to see them uh, drop off. And in fact. I think we loved all those teams at the back and the story of them trying to, you know, make their way. Manor, Caterham, Marussia, uh, kind of seems like they were left out to dry completely. And, and when they left, it, it said something to us about the sport we love and the sport we were watching. But to think that Lotus were thinking about taking on a B team or, you know, a merger team, would it have been similar to the Red Bull Toro Rosso relationship? That was, it was, listen, it was, it was, we had a few discussions about it. it. It never really got much traction, gained much traction, but that was the idea. That's yeah, that not what the, the headlines will say tomorrow. It'll say Carter <laughs> confirms Caterham talks with Lotus. I mean, I was, you know, I, I went there, I went to the factory. We had, I had a tour around their factory. We worked out what synergies there were between their, their factory, their premises and our premises. We both had Renault engines at the time. Um, so it, there was, there was a synergy there. Um, so you walked uh, around yeah, saying... We've got. We don't need two of those. You're sacked. We don't need two of those. You'd be sacked. Well, again, we, we we sort of alluded a little bit to this last time with customer cars. So it's not quite that easy because there's there's, there's listed parts and there's non-listed parts. Yeah, I was literally going to ask you that very question because the the list of well listed parts was was a bit longer back then. So what what synergies did you see? How could you have really worked together given the need to have your own intellectual property stamp on a lot of the things that go into the car? Chinese walls, etc. Exactly. No, so we, so we could have so we could have we spoke to um, we spoke to Bernie um, about it very very early on. We we made him aware that we were that there were discussions going on. Um, they they have to be a little bit more than Chinese walls, but for for sure the sh- or the, the listed parts have to be purely designed by. So the idea was we were going to reduce the factory the catering factory down to basically a design. Uh, a design office and a, a small manufacturing area. And then the listed parts would all be made at Enstone. So suspension, uh, gearbox, uh, et cetera, et cetera, could have all been made at Enstone. And then the aerodynamics and the chassis and the, the listed parts areas would have been made at Caterham. Then the idea for us was that we could go to some of the, the theory was we could go to some of our sponsors um, and tell them they were getting obviously twice as much coverage um, we could even give certain of our sponsors bigger spaces on a on a second car. Um, we didn't get as far as talking about livery, et cetera, et cetera. But that was the that was the theory. Um, and from a numbers point of view, it actually did it did stack up. It um, we would have reduced the Caterham um, staff size, um, probably increased a little bit the staff at Enstone um, between the two businesses. We could have we could have just about made it work. So what what ultimately uh, put the kibosh on that? Uh, honestly, it was time. It was it was they were in uh, a worse position than I think a lot of us realised at the time. Um, I mean, even though I'd seen the figures, I'd seen the numbers, um, but I don't know if you remember all the stories. So I think some administer some bailiffs turned up and they literally locked locked the gates and the catering staff were sat outside and. Um, and as soon as things like that happen, then obviously things things tend to come down like a like a pack of cards, and uh, and it all fell apart, and we just didn't have the time to put the deal together. Um, and then and then another, um, what was the name of the guy that took it over? The um, Collis, a guy called Colin, Colin Collis. Yes, yeah, Adrian. who would 
Exactly, who had been involved, and he was there was some big story with him and Toto Wolf about him recording some conversation, and there was all sorts of strange things went on. And uh, no, what story? Please tell. It's strange things, public. Matthew. Yeah, but uh, remind remind our listening audience. I had to, to be perfectly honest, I can't actually remember all the details, but it is very public. If you Google it, it's there online. Right. He, he recorded Toto saying something about something, and then they got into a big spat in Germany over it. Um, and he took the team over, and when he took the team over, it was fairly obvious, I think, to pretty much everyone in the paddock that he'd taken over it with a with a, with no money whatsoever, and it was it was always gonna it was always gonna go sideways. All right, let's give Mr. Carter a little break while we tell you about some of the interesting things going on in our world. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, Matt, don't worry. I'm going to give you 30 seconds to plug what you're doing and make sure you tell everyone where to go. But I would say to you guys, follow me at Spanners Ready. Because, very excitingly, I've got my first on-screen role as a roving pit lane reporter for the British Rental Car Championships, uh, which is run by Bradley Philpot, And it's going to be all broadcast on YouTube. So you're going to see me in all my glory asking people dead serious questions. And yes, I did ask them if they're familiar with me from the podcast and they understand that I can't keep anything straight for more than 20 seconds at a time. They seem to be happy with that. So that's something cool. Make sure you follow me at Spanners Ready, now that I've got over a thousand followers and I am fully 100% legit. Matt, you've got 30 seconds. Plug your things, dude. My things is I'm making an album with my trio called Nightscapes. And much is the modern way, I'm trying to shake the internet money tree for donations. So if you are interested in supporting something that is technically not motorsport related, but is very definitely me related, please go to https double slash igg dot me slash at slash nightscapes and drop some coin on the project. We're looking to get the album out around next September. It's going to be original music. It's going to be some standards too. And we want to beef it up a little bit. So we want to get a singer. 
We want to get a drummer. We want to bring in some guest artists who are very special and well-known in the New York City music community. But we can only do that with your help. And so, yeah, kick a little in for some live music in a profession that is definitely getting harder and harder every day uh, to keep moving forward in. Support Real Musicians Kids. No, honestly, support Real Musicians. I let my kids stay up and watch X Factor. Oh my lordy, it is still full of... Well, it's a family show. But anyway, Matthew Carter... A question from my... There was one good band, actually. I liked it. I liked the little trio. They were quite good. They did their own thing. That wasn't terrible karaoke. But anyway, Matthew Carter, a question from my wife. Genuinely a question from my wife, who fails to value anything I do in this shed whatsoever. She said, why on earth is an XF1 team boss talking to you in your shed? And and to to be clear... This is not coming from a good place. My wife is mean and doesn't value my projects at all. Curse the gods for her cruel beauty. Um, but is this kind of engagement after the fact, is this something very alien to you? Um, because, you know, I, I couldn't imagine, for example, that Franz Tots would ever judge on, jump on F1 blog or anything other than BBC checkered flag. Uh, well, he, he probably wouldn't because he's working at the moment. So, um, but no, I, I mean, the honest answer is I, I, I don't see why not. I mean, I, as I said before, I listened to a number of podcasts and yours cropped up. I, th- I think it was through Joe Saywood's link that I, I listened to it for the first time and uh, I'm not blowing smoke anywhere because it's a family show, but do I it, genuinely man. think it's a, it's a, you do a really good job. I think it's, it's interesting and engaging and the, and the, the different people that you have on it are, are good. And, uh, and we had a, a few direct messages through Twitter, as you know, and, you know, you you seem very sensible. You ask sensible questions and uh, I don't know. I don't see any reason why I shouldn't be here. It's, it's as good a medium as any to talk to people that are interested in what I want to waffle on about. Good. That's increased my personal glory enough. Thank you very much. But the broader point is that the mediascape is kind of changing and there's a lot more places to say and talk about things and express yourself uh, than perhaps there once was. But my question really, I think, is when you're in the paddock, how much of what is going on in this wider atmosphere, because we have a really engaged community of F1 fans, how much does that wider atmosphere penetrate? So are you guys sitting in there only reading the sun and listening to uh, Sky Sports? Or does anyone ever pop in and say, you'll never guess what was said on Reddit. Someone says you're a dirty fat liar. No, no, no. It's a, a, a mixture of the two. I mean, I certainly never used to sit and read the sun. Um, but <laughs> we, uh, so we certainly, I mean, I can talk about Lotus and a little bit about the other teams, but we had um, a press office. Um, every single day, one of my uh, numerous emails that was a regular email every day was a list of the clippings from various media You're like places Trump. You're like Trump. So day. someone came to you with all the clippings. Did they only give you the good ones? Just like Trump gets. Uh, no, 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 not at all, not at all. It, so it was, it was via email. It was usually a link through to different things that had either talked about us, talked about our drivers, talked about Mercedes or Renault or whatever. Um, and then you could go through and look at them. And then, being perfectly honest, when you're actually in that media bubble, you're trying to probably steer as far away from things like this as you can, um, because you don't want to, you know, when you're in and you've got sponsors and teams and drivers and. Uh, employees to to deal with you're trying to steer a very fine line between what you can and you can't say 
Um, so everything is you'll see you'll notice in the pen after a, a team principal's press conference There's or even the drivers. There. Yeah. There's always a press officer with a microphone stood next to them and they're monitoring everything that's being said. And you're very, very carefully. I mean, before the team principal's press conference, you'd have a press advisor there in my ear saying, don't mention this or do mention that or to make sure that that doesn't come up. If that comes up, just blanket. Um, wait, wait, come on. You've got to give me an example because you just said it's been 18 months and that's a very NDA-ish period of time. Come on, give us an example of like something that someone said, don't mention that. No, there was, there was not. There was obviously with Lotus a lot of the things that were going on were financial based because we yeah. certainly during 2015 we had we had big issues financially. Um, so there was a lot of there were there were times when um, the staff's wages had been late paid or we hadn't paid for certain things. I mean, you'll remember in the 2015 season there was a classic in Mexico where we couldn't afford to pay for our hospitality. So there was there was big shots of our hospitality area being completely closed down and. Um, so it's, it's things like that that, you know, that, to be fair, the journalists were kind of briefed a little bit as well, not to mention it. Um, but there's a, there's a few journalists. I mean, uh, Joe Saywood is one of the ones who's a fairly, <laughs> he's fairly aggressive. Um, there's a guy called Dieter Rankin, a South African guy, who is just known to be the one that is always going to ask something. Um, and he seemed to have some very good inside information. I remember him asking me once whether or not we would paid DHL to get our freight to the next Grand Prix um and we hadn't um and he specifically asked me the question and i but i knew that we were this was on a uh, team principals press conference on a thursday um and i knew we were paying the next day so i didn't answer the question i think i just said to him our freight our cars will be at the next grand prix and he was like well i've heard that they're not going to be there that you haven't paid so it's things like that that you just have to steer a very fine line because the minute i say no, we haven't, then all hell's going to break loose and you've got sponsors and drivers and employees and journalists and podcasts that are going to pick up on things like that. So that, That's quite an accusation. Are you saying that you get people like me sitting there drilling down for juicy information like what you weren't uh, supposed to tell people in the press? That's, that's unbelievable. Those sharks, those charlatans. Uh, now, Matthew, uh, what secrets were revealed? No. Um, <laughs> no, it's interesting though because Joe has got such a um i guess a confidence from the years of working uh, in the paddock and he knows exactly what he can and can't get away with it's not even so much get away with but what will damage future relations do you find that those those sort of grizzly stalwarts uh are able to dodge that line more than say you know ted coming in and shoving a mic in your mouth yeah, I mean, there's that, again, I, I, I kind of alluded to it before. There's, there's a whole different array of the way that the journalists go about their work. So uh, there's a journalist called Adam Cooper that I really didn't like. I didn't get on with him at all. He made some terrible accusations about certain things, and I just refused to talk to him. He ne- and he never got he never got a single any information from me whatsoever. Whereas people like Joe would kind of play it a little bit aggressive, but a little bit friendly at the same time. And people like Ted Kravitz are just like a big cuddly bear who just comes in and he never really says anything aggressive. He's all nice and friendly and chatty and, um, and it all goes well. But um, the relationship between the, the team principals and the press and the drivers and the press is, is quite a tricky one. Um, and again, it's all super public. But back in 2015 in, at the British Grand Prix, when I did the team principals press conference, I had to go at the press. And really? I, honestly, yeah, they um, they started asking me questions again about finances and about this, that and the other. And I said that they were being negative and that they were only writing negative stories. And could they not write some positive things? And that, you you know, that we were whatever we were fourth or fifth in the championship, that we were doing so much better this year than we'd done before. And 
there was a guy from the Telegraph called Daniel Johnson who got really uh, semi-aggressive and started saying that, well, how can we be positive when Bernie Eccleston called the, and he, and he said a, a word that we wouldn't say on this podcast. Um, and we got into a bit of a spat and it was, and it was stopped by Mattia, the Matthew, the, the guy that sort of oversees the press conferences. So he called a halt to the thing and said, no more questions. And then, uh, I remember Joe Saywood, of all people, coming up to me afterwards and saying, I agree with you. You know, mm-hmm. you know what you said, all the right things. So, um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's a fine line. It's a fine line. It's pronounced Saywood. I actually write it down as S-A-Y-W-O-O-D in my notes so they don't get it wrong and invoke his anger. Uh, but it is really interesting to see. Were you on, uh, I think that's what we call in poker, going on tilt. Is it just a culmination of all the negativity that made you just go, do you know what? <laughs> Do you know what? It was it was it was one of those press conferences. There was uh, again, you're, it's online. Eric Boulier, Claire Williams were sitting in front of me, not saying very much. I can't remember who was next to me, but there was someone else not saying very much. And uh, and this this question cropped up, and I just and I and I and I bit ever so slightly, and then it, bit. It took That's the that. term. Yes, yeah. uh, you bit. Uh, let me um, just uh, go through some of the questions that have come through uh, in the chat room since you've. Um, been talking and you have a habit of just dropping some bombshells uh and and then walking away and as people going wait what wait a minute what he did what um people are asking i think this one was from hannah hassel in the chat room um is grosjean because you were talking about responding to uh instructions on the radio and how they only show certain things grosjean comes across as a little whiny on the radio Mm -hmm. now Mm -hmm. he says that is just the world feed or the broadcasters only picking out the whiny things. Is he what? Is he a bit whiny? He's you're Mr. Carter. It's an, it's an audio <laughs> podcast. <laughs> he, uh, yes, he can be, he can be, he can be very, I think all racing drivers are to a, to an extent, you know, they, 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 they make a joke about the racing drivers excuse book being the, the longest mm-hmm. book that's ever been written. And, um, yeah, there's, I mean, I remember, well, again, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different, um, anecdotes that i can portray but i remember tell one. us remember several Ro- of them i remember roman crashing under a safety car in the rain and i can't even remember which grand prix it was now but he was warming his tires uh, maybe it wasn't in the rain maybe it was just, maybe it could have been just been damp conditions i can't remember but he was warming his tires he was weaving backwards and forwards under the safety car so in the line of all the other cars and he spun and, and went into the wall um and he stormed back to the pit wall and i was on the pit wall and he stormed back and he said so this wasn't over the radio but he said, you put me off, you, to his race engineer, he said, you put me off, you were talking to me too much. Oh, that is cognitive dissonance as at its best, isn't it? Uh, and, just- I pulled, and I pulled him to one side and I said, Roman, you can't say that. Because his race engineer <laughs> was genuinely gutted, was like, oh my God, was that really? And he, then the red mist or the, you know, he calmed down a little bit and he came over and he apologised. But yeah, Roman can be like that. He can be... There's always, um, it's never the driver's fault, whatever happens. You'll hear all of them, you know, the, the minute that they come off the track, then it's, you know, can you check my tire pressures or, you know, the, the, the car's not right or the brakes aren't right or whatever. It's, that's, uh, it's in a driver's DNA. But um, I only, as, as you know, the, the two and a half years I was there, I only worked with two drivers, with Pastor and Roman, and Roman was certainly the more vocal of the two. So if you don't mind us being just a bit nosy, we do wonder about just the day-to-day life within the paddock because it's not just the sessions we see on TV. You are there for four, five days, uh, maybe even more on some of the flyaways or back-to-back races. 
so your social lives are there as well. Would you find yourself sitting and having a meal with Roman and Pasta or, you know, did they shuffle themselves off into a driver's special only bit? Um, no, not at all. I mean, uh, for, for me and I think for the, the, the senior guys, it's not as long as that. So the mechanics and the guys that build up the, the garages or whatever are usually there from, say, a Tuesday or a Wednesday before the Grand Prix. Um, and then you'll see, if you ever watch Ted's Notebook, they pack down very quickly on the Sunday after. But for me, I would quite often arrive there on a Friday, sometimes even a Saturday, and I would leave on a Sunday and sometimes leave before the race had even finished um, to make sure that I was back at Endstone because, as we've alluded to before, 90% or 80% of my staff were back in the UK. So I would want to be back in Endstone for the Monday morning. Um, so in terms of a social life, yeah, it's 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 difficult. I had um, a deputy team principal, a guy called Federico Gastaldi, um, who's quite well known in the paddock, who I spent most of my time with when I was at the at the races. Um, and yeah, we'd I'd have dinner with the drivers or dinners with dinners with him or or whatever. But it's it's yeah, it's quite a small world. But it's a lot of there's a lot of jet lag and a lot of um, stuff outside of the racetrack that we have to do what about the pit crew then because i know that if i was away with a bunch of 25 to 30 year old mostly men as in fact it worked out uh, that i did uh, as a younger man as soon as you're away anywhere and the work stops you know the beer comes out we will search the town for the nearest party and if you don't put tight restrictions on that i i would have been out until one o'clock in the morning you know how much of that goes on in the teams or do they just wait until Sunday and completely decompress. So my experience of, of the guys at Lotus was, was they were completely the opposite. They were, uh, they were kind of at the pinnacle of their career. That was where they'd always wanted to be. And they were honestly, I know it sounds boring, but they were so focused and so dedicated that they never, they, they genuinely, not even on a Sunday, they wouldn't even have time on a Sunday because on a Sunday they would go maybe Abu Dhabi next weekend, the last race of the season, they'd let their hair down or whatever, but genuinely they are, super focused they quite often pull in really long shifts working on the car as i said before you don't really realize but there's a different engine in the car on a friday than there is on a saturday so most teams are dropping the whole engine back out of the car on a friday and putting a new engine in on saturday um you know one shunt into a wall you know you see the amount of time effort and work that they that they that they put in so by the time they get back to the hotels i think they're all they're, they're too tired to do anything anyway um, and I've said this before to other to other outlets, but one of the oh. things that really impressed me the most was um, back in the day. Don't worry, not not now. Um, one of the things that really impressed me back in back in the day was that when I would go into the garage and something had happened. So let's say one of our cars, probably not Romance, had gone off the track <laughs> and and had um, <laughs> had an altercation with a wall. Then uh, you would see probably 25 guys underneath an F1 car. So they're working in like a very, very narrow, short, tiny, confined space, working on their own little separate area. There was never a crossword. There was never a, um, a raised voice. It was always, they were just like, you'd walk into the garage and it would be focused. It would be, you know, everyone knew exactly what they're doing and how they had to do it. Um, and it was, yeah, it was incredible. And the same thing passes all the way along. When you look at, when you look at the pit stops, you know, you look the, the dedication and the practice that they put in to do a pit stop at less than 2.5 seconds, you have no idea of the, of the, the commitment and the effort and the work that it takes. So as an engineer myself, a forward repair engineer in some high stress situations, do those lads drill when they're back at home? Do they drill 
doing an engine change? Do they drill doing a suspension change as quickly as, as they can in between sessions? So, cause we, we see, obviously they practice the nose change, but to do an engine, you're talking, you know, maybe a thousand separate different, uh, components and procedures. So they, they sit there and have like a, a training session to get that done as quickly as possible. Absolutely. A hundred percent. They're constantly doing it. So we had a mock-up car, which was, I mean, the technology in Formula One obviously is, is incredible. We had a 3D printed mock-up engine and gearbox that, were, that they used to work on uh, back at the factory. Um, and yeah, for, for, for everything, for the pit stops, they do thousands and thousands of practice pit stops. Um, you know, they're constantly, they, we had an A team and a B team and it was, it was almost, it was almost run like, um, like a competition. You know, if you got into the A team, if you were the, the front right wheel man, then, you know, you got into the A team from the B team and it was like, a, it was a big step forward and the, and the guys really enjoyed it. You know, it was a, it was a challenge and, you know, they love to be the fastest. And we, during my time there, we regularly were, we regularly did do some of the fastest pit stops. We were, they were, they were really good. Well, we're getting towards the end of our time, but we do have a quick subject left. Podium bumper. It's near the end, isn't it? It's podium. I could have played a different one. I made decisions. They're not always right. Uh, but uh, Matthew, before we go over to finishing off talking about Ferrari, uh, as we discussed earlier, uh, I want to make sure that people follow Missed Apex F1 on Twitter. Check out the website www.mistapexpodcast.com. See the great work that Felix and Steve have done with the graphics uh, on the website and on YouTube to make us look like a presentable professional outfit, Matt. We're, we're starting to fool people trumpets. We're getting away with it. Yeah, and it's a good feeling indeed, and a special thanks to all the behind-the-scenes people who are putting in the extra hours to make it look as slick and polished as it does. Yeah, I know not all the panelists, uh, you know, are great. You know, I don't want to mention any jeansies, ah, curses, uh, any names at all, but they are all earnest individuals that are trying their best. Uh, Matt, why don't you uh, give us the lowdown on what's been happening at Ferrari? Well, and this really, I think, just comes out of their their threat to quit the sport is uh, Marchioni made the claim that they were losing a hundred million euros, dollars, pounds, whichever it was, international currency units. Shall we go with that? And uh, there was an article out about that this week. And so I was kind of curious, do you really think they're losing that much money? Um, so I, I saw the numbers. So the, the, the numbers that, came out were they from their official accounts or are they are they a guess from somewhere well it, it's a little bit i don't want to use the word dodgy but they were written about in an article but the article claims their uh december 16 find it was it december 16 in the article um okay or, or their december report as being the basis for these numbers okay so um I, it's a difficult one i mean they they so if, if you take it at face value and you assume that they, those figures are entirely correct, that they are spending 100 million, it's costing them 100 million to go racing. As we've talked about before, that is the only form of marketing that Ferrari do. Um, so if they quit Formula One and then they started having to advertise their cars elsewhere, are they going to spend more than that? I probably would suggest that they would. Um, just in terms of in I don't know in in TV adverts or in uh, magazine articles or whatever, because Ferrari don't do any other marketing apart from Formula One. So if you take things at face value, um, it, it doesn't sound like a lot to me. Um, but there's there's a lot of there's a lot of indiscrepancies in those figures. I mean, the figures came out um, 
I saw the figures for last year's revenue split and Ferrari came out with a hundred million more than anyone else. Um, as, as they, as they always seem to do. Um, they are, I know for a fact, they've got a couple of huge sponsorship deals that are, that are historic, um, that they, I mean, they, they still have an ongoing sponsorship deal with Marlborough, would you believe the cigarette company? Um, so they still, they still wow. have a couple of, they, they still have some big sponsorship deals in place. Um, and they, uh, you know, they, but they pay big wages to their drivers. They've got a lot of staff. Um, it, it, it's possible that it cost them a hundred million. I don't think it's, I don't think it's a crazy figure. I mean, we lost 64 million at Lotus. Um, and we were called all the names under the sun as being a terribly run team. This was the year before I arrived. Um, but then teams like Ferrari and Red Bull and Mercedes can turn around and say, well, we're putting that money in, we're covering it because we're Ferrari or we're Red Bull or we're Mercedes. So um, it is what it is. Yeah. So if I'm understanding you right, then part of that is basically what would you say, maybe value added in terms of like what would amount to advertising dollars for being on TV and being in the sport. And the article seemed to be very careful about how they listed what their estimated sponsorship was. But what would you think, like the marketing exposure, what number would you put on it for Ferrari? What do they gain um, if uh, from from sponsoring the team in terms of advertising well, I mean, I, you, I, we don't have to go into it here because you, you, both of you, and I'm sure everyone listening knows, but for, Formula One is the biggest sport in the world, whatever anyone says. So we have, we regularly, the figures used to be banded about when I was there, but it was 250 million people every weekend watch the, watch a race. And it's truly worldwide. It's more worldwide than any, I mean, I know you're American, Matt, but um, American mm. football is is only really viewed properly in America. Yeah, okay, you get a you get a small spattering of people that watch it across the rest of the world, the same with baseball, etc. Formula One is a is a truly global sport. You'll have people watching in India, in China, in Australia, in the UK, in, in everywhere. It's 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 a truly global sport. And every two weeks or every week if it's back to back, you have a huge 250 million people watching that sport. That's like a Super Bowl every two weeks. That's like a World Cup final every two weeks. Um, so you get a Super Bowl once a year, World Cup final every four years. Every two weeks or every week, if it's back to back, 21 times a year, you're getting a huge, huge, huge audience of people watching. And, you, and as we talked about before, you look at the amount of red that's everywhere that is, you know, Ferrari get huge exposure from that. So when we were trying to court new sponsors, you would, you would band out these figures and you would say, you know, your logo is going to be seen by all these people. So it's difficult to put a dollar number on it, but I would suggest that if it's the only way that Ferrari market their cars, and if they stop that, they're going to have to start marketing them another way. And I and I get the fact that Ferrari have a heritage and they have a have a natural uh, aspiration aspect, you know, that people are going to buy their cars because they're Ferrari, but they still have to market somehow. So if I can just jump in, we're looking at the graphic that Joe Saywood tweeted, where he broke down where all the F1 revenues go. And the total is really affected by the prize money. And I was listening back to our chat a couple of weeks ago, uh, the second episode you did with us, where you were talking about that payoff between Pastor's money and the difference between finishing fifth or sixth. And the gap in that prize money is 10 million. And it didn't really go absorb when you were talking about it last time. But looking at this chart, I mean, we can completely exonerate Williams because the top three teams get so much more of the prize money. The gap between third and fourth is about 55 million. And that's insane. No wonder Williams aren't bothered whether they finish fourth, fifth or sixth. 
Okay, I don't think it's fair to say they're not bothered whether they finish fourth, fifth or sixth. And I'm sure they've got aspirations to finish much higher. But the amount of money that they get from their drivers, there's a payoff between that and where they're going to finish. Um, And also, if you look at that graphic that Joe Saywood put through, because I I saw that as well, um, you notice that there's only the top 10 teams that get the first breakdown of of the prize money. So that was one of the things when I was briefly at Mana. It was a huge thing because if there's 11 teams, the team that comes 11th gets zero from the first, from column one, I think they call it. And you have to be in the sport a year to be eligible for that money as well, if I'm remembering correctly. Exactly. Yeah. So new, so the, so the incentive for new teams coming to the sport is zero, well, it's, unless you've got a hell of a lot of money behind you, which Bernie always said that, you know, if you haven't got the money, then, then don't come and play in our, in our, uh, in our sun pit. It just feels like a bit of a racket. It feels like a way to keep and Mercedes, Red Bull and Ferrari in the sport and rich and, and everybody else is put in that second cast. And I don't think that's too harsh a word for it. Uh, advice, find Joe Saywood on Twitter. Look for the graphic that he tweeted. I mean, how, how can people even hope to bridge that gap? And, and do Renault even have a chance of bridging that gap? Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, I mean, first thing, I think you should probably retweet that rather than directing people to Joe Saywood's Twitter. Oh, Joe's, Joe's crew. He's part of it. He's all right. He's, he's coming on. He'll be on tomorrow night. So we're all right. We don't mind. We'll share some of our glory with Joe Saywood. Um, do I think Renault? Yes, I do. I, I think Renault could get, could, they could get into that. Um, you know, Mercedes did it. You look at Mercedes. Mercedes came from, what, four or five years ago to being you know, zero to hero, if you like. Yeah, they, they threw a hell of a lot of money into it. I think we spoke about before, they signed a deal whereby if they won back-to-back championships, they got some extra money. I think that's reflected in the same graphic. Um, but if they won back-to-back championships, they got more money, so therefore they get they get more revenue. Um, so yeah, there's a chance for people to break in, but without wishing to be too much of a downer, don't forget, you look at most other sports, you know, if you look at the Premier League in England, you know, who is, is there, is there, I mean, I know everyone's going to point to Leicester. and Immediately debunk your argument with Leicester. Exactly. But But apart from that. Generally, generally, you know, the bigger teams who get the bigger crowds, if you like, they've got bigger stadiums, so they get bigger crowds, they get more money, so they can pay players of a better standard, better money. It kind of, it it does follow through. The, The difference with Formula One is that there is this, again, you know, if you look at the graphic, there is this this sway between the, the pot of money and then there's this historical extra um, sort of Bernieized payments that, that he gave to people to, to encourage them to stay in the sport. Yeah, and, and, it's a, and it's a very special thing. The top three teams get an extra share of the money. Um, if you win double world championships, you get an extra share of money. And then Ferrari gets a flat out, I believe it's a percentage of about 5% of total revenue, half from the team split and half from FOM split. And it, on the one hand, I guess at least with the top three teams getting extra money, at least there's some minor parity there in terms of spending. But if you look at it compared to what everybody else gets, it, it really is a tale of, of almost two different sports. But then, but then this is this is why it's quite interesting. The whole thing that Sergio Marchionne came out with last week or the week before, when he was talking about leaving the sport, and and I think I touched on it at the time. The way that Bernie dealt with things like that was is reflected in in, in the amount of money that's paid. But 
to be fair to Bernie, I think you have to do that. You, you, you know, he had to. He had to make decisions. You know, Ferrari also have a veto over some of the rules, which is, which is. I mean, I think that was mentioned again this week when I think they vetoed the Red Bull went for three engines. They were opposed to a three-engine rule for next year, and Ferrari vetoed it. Yeah, thanks. So as well as Ferrari getting more money, they've got this special veto where they can sort of claim that they can not change the rules, but they can stop rules being implemented if they don't believe it's in the best interest of them. So, um, but all these things were done in order to keep Ferrari in the sport. Was they were done to make the sport what it is today. And as I said before, and I will stick to my stick to my guns on it. You know, the, the sport's in a pretty good place. You know, it's it's. You know the amount of people that watch it and listen to it. It's it's in a good place. So um, the fact that only two or three teams can maybe win, but again, you start you add you, McLaren will for sure. McLaren are going to get back there soon, and if Renault continue to spend the money that they're spending, they're going to get back there soon. So then you're already into what five teams that are in with a shout of podiums at least. It starts to become a little bit more, but you know it's it's going to be difficult for the for the Toro Rossos and the yep. and the Salbers. People have got used to bemoaning F1 as a matter of course, when in fact, you know, the real racing on track, it hasn't changed a huge amount since the 80s and 90s. And people have always complained throughout my lifetime about the same things they're complaining about now. Uh, The sport is essentially in a fine condition. Um, But we have a question relating to this on Twitter, and we are out of time. So firstly, I'll ask you, have we persuaded you yet to have a public Twitter account so you can interact with uh, all the people who love you on Twitter from our show? No, you're shaking your head. Come on. We will work on you. Okay. In the meantime, then we will be your conduit to Twitter. One question from utter shambles. What are Liberty and Ross Braun getting right? And what are they getting wrong? And uh, I think we'll make that the last thing we pose to you, Mr. Carter. So how can you say we're running out of time and then ask me a question like that? Because we um, want you to talk for another two hours. Go. <laughs> so did you see the logo stuff that they put out? This yeah, week? that's um, not good. It's not no. good. So what are they doing wrong? What are they doing wrong? Um, I think they are trying to appeal to the fans more. Um, that's obviously a good thing. Uh, they're trying to do some different things that, uh, to, to, to brighten and liven up the sport. Um, I think that's a good thing. Um, they're, they're trying, I think they're trying to put their own approach to the, the rulemaking. Um, but I'm not sure how that's going to, I genuinely am not sure how that's going to, how that's going to play with the teams. Um, I think if they continue how it seems from the outside, the fairly belligerent way that they've gone about rulemaking, uh, they are going to upset the, the big teams. Um, and unfortunately, much as we all hope it isn't, Formula One is all about the big teams. Um, and if they really do upset Ferrari and Mercedes and Renault to the extent that they decide to go off, then they've, they made, they've made a huge error. Um, so, so it's difficult. I think, I think they've realised it's not as easy as they thought my opinion from seeing the way that they their approach and their attitude has changed slightly since day one when they were all very bernie did this and bernie did that and we're going to change this and we're going to change that and look how amazing it's going to be really they've not changed a hell of a lot um you know they've the, their approach to rulemaking is maybe they're going about it differently um but they've not actually implemented anything yet um and i get it's only the end of the they've not even a full season and i get that um the question was what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong. Hopefully engaging the fans a little bit more. The event London Live was amazing. If they do more of those sort of things where mm. more fans can come along and see and see the drivers up close and personal and see the cars doing donuts in the streets and, and all that sort of stuff, they can do more of that. That's great. 
um, more stuff on social media, allowing more access to, uh, to clips of maybe old races and cars. That's all good. Um, but they need to make sure they don't tear their soul out of the sport, I think. And, and I think there's a risk that they could do that. As James Funnel in the chat room says, that is a big, big question and probably one where we could get you on here and talk about that alone uh, for an hour. So I, in fact, picked the worst possible question to try and end this show on. So you can't follow Matthew Carter anywhere, but I will work on him, guys. Don't worry about that. You can follow Matt at MattPT55 on Twitter. We have a Facebook page, Missed Apex Podcast. We're on YouTube, Missed Apex Podcast. Click subscribe and the little bell, and you'll get a notification every time we go live or I accidentally press record while I'm doing promos for other things, follow me personally at Spanners Ready. And make sure you join us tomorrow night here on the stream, Monday, 8pm UK time, where we'll be speaking to Joe Sayward for Inside F1. And then, of course, we're going to have our season finale race review at 8pm UK time, that's GMT, for the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. Until we see you next time, remember that wounds heal, chicks dig scars, and glory lasts forever. This was Diaries of an F1 Boss with Matthew Carter. Even Joe Saywood now rocks out to the music, Matthew. I mean, no, too cool for school. It's not happening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 